This is In Tune, the in-series podcast opening up to you your own in-series, opera and more, an oasis of intimate, innovative, and inspiring ideas through music, theater, art, and opera. We're recording on September 18th, and this is an Inside the Opera Studio episode, and I'll be having a conversation with Brian Ariola, a guest singer with the in-series in the cast of Viva Verdi, The Promised End. I'm your host, Timothy Nelson, artistic director of the in-series, and we are just entering our last week of performances. We have a performance on Wednesday, tomorrow the 19th, and this weekend the 21st, 22nd, 23rd, and this is your last chance to catch Viva Verdi. I don't think anything like it will be coming back for, for a while now. We've had great coverage in Broadway World, the DC theater scene, as well, of course, Anne Majette's great article that I spoke about last time. Um, so, so come out this weekend, check it out. If you've already come, come again. We're offering free tickets to anyone who's come. We want people to start thinking of art as a process and not a product. We want It's a sort of piece we want you to experience multiple times. So we're very happy to have with us tenor Brian Ariola, who's joining us from Charlotte, North Carolina, where he lives with his wife and kids. And is the head of opera, is that your title? Uh, it's... I teach the opera workshop class. Okay, we'll <laughs> but I end up being sort of the head of opera <laughs> uh, at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. Um, and have you ever done a podcast before? I don't think I have. So it's my first interview and, and Brian's first podcast. Mm-hmm. Who knows where this is going to go? <laughs> um, in the interest of full disclosure, Brian and I have I figured this out the other night. We've known each other 13 years. We've done Mozart and Bizet and. Verdi. Verdi, now three times. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you sang Ricardo for me in Ballo, and before that, Duca and Rigoletto, and now another Requiem. <laughs> uh, and we also did Butterfly mm-hmm. together, Puccini. So, so we've been all over the map. Um, what have you been up to lately? Well, family-wise, of course, we just adopted our son. Yeah, congratulations. Yes, thank you. You so, have three now. Now we're up to three. And yet you decided to come to, <laughs> right. to travel. How many times have you gone back and forth from North Carolina? Uh, it was going to be six total, but because of Florence, it ended up being four trips, I believe. Right. And so my wife has kind of been the unsung hero, taking care of three kids uh, just as back to school has gotten started. And the three kids are all at three different schools, only one of which has morning busing. So there's, oh, and the mornings are insane. Um, and I'm looking forward to going back on Monday and jumping back into that, trying to take some of the load off of hers so that she can get some of her work done. Yeah, and we should say she's also a brilliant musician. She's, she's a, a cellist, cellist and a cello professor um, at the same school where I teach, the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. Yeah, have you guys worked together before? Um, artistically? Yeah. Yeah, we've done um, a couple of different projects, uh, including, of course, uh, the performance and recording of your opera songs of the fishermen. That's right. In addition to Puccini, Verdi, yeah. and Bizet, you've We've also done Nelson. Done Nelson. <laughs> <laughs> so Brian recorded um, and staged a, a large song cycle that I wrote now. Well, tomorrow it'll be 20 years ago when I was 19. Uh, <laughs> and finally we recorded it, what, six years ago? Five or six years yeah. ago, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what, uh, can you tell me about, about your, your work at the university? Well, I'm, a, I'm an applied voice instructor, which is just kind of a complicated academia way of saying a voice teacher. So I teach uh, anywhere from 9 to 10 or 11 um, individual voice lessons per week. Those are um, vocal performance majors pursuing a Bachelor of Music and Performance or 
future educators pursuing the Bachelor of Music in uh, edu music education. And I also have some Bachelor of Arts students. Um, the Bachelor of Arts degree, of course, allows more time for maybe something like a double degree across campus or just other academic interests. And in addition to those one-on-one -on -one lessons, I teach the opera workshop class, which I have turned into sort of my own fun little <laughs> lab slash uh, production company. We do basically one show a year. We spend the fall workshopping um, the text, learning the music, um, getting it sort of ready to stage, and then we stage in the spring. Uh, and we perform it typically on campus, two or three performances, um, depending on how it's cast. And then we also like to either take it out into the schools um, in the Charlotte-Mecklenburg area, or this year we're going to try something different and actually bus high school and middle school kids onto our campus and do performances for them there. And the director part of me is salivating at the idea of working a whole semester just oh, on is. text well, and preparing. And it is, it's kind of a luxury, but it's also now our, our schedule has changed um, and our periods are 50 minutes. So that's three 50-minute slots per week. Per week. Yeah. So, so it's one rehearsal, basically. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's barely one professional rehearsal before a coffee break, sort of. And you direct, conduct... I, I do typically direct and conduct, um, although I've had colleagues from the theater department um, come and direct, which was an amazing experience for my students. Um, and I've also had colleagues from the music department guest conduct, which is also a wonderful experience for them. Uh, did you, had you directed or conducted before you took the position? I had not directed. I had done some conducting um, all the way back into my undergrad years. Because you're from, you're from the Midwest, right? Mm -hmm. I'm from Waukesha, Wisconsin. Yeah, where, where the arts matter. <laughs> where the arts used to matter I, more, unfortunately. Yeah, I think of Minnesota and Wisconsin. As yes, yeah. I mean, back in Utopia, our day, I'm a you know, child of the 80s. Um, Minnesota and Wisconsin sort of bounced back and forth for national rankings of uh, high school educational outcomes, including obviously the SAT and the ACT, but also just matriculation into colleges and graduation rates, you know, in general. Um, and those, Wisconsin has faltered quite a bit more in the last decade or so than Minnesota, which is unfortunate. So building on that, the, the question I wanted to, to actually start with, to dig in with, is why opera? Like, what in your formation led you to, to opera? What a good question, yeah. Which actually, in 13 years, I've never asked you. <laughs> well, so, I was actually just filling out my... Um, artist bio thing for Carla to go on the website, I believe, and it, I think it said, what other career would you want to try? Or there was a question that led me to this um, answer about when I was 13, 14, 15, I was an avid reader of Popular Science Magazine, and all the way back then in the, whatever that is, the late 80s, they were talking about hybrid cars with regenerative braking, and they were talking about um, maglev trains that are going to be so much vastly more efficient. Um, they were talking about, you know, sucking the air out of a tube and putting all these things that Elon Musk has been working on because transportation takes up approximately a third of our energy and if we can fix that segment of the economy we have a much better hope of preventing, you know, uh, catastrophic climate change. Additionally, back then, climate change science was actually taught as science in 
Waukesha, Wisconsin, which is so Republican that Reagan visited twice while I was growing up. And of course I went, I was a Boy Scout and the Boy really? Scouts went. Oh yeah. Wow. Um, even though my family were pretty, you know, hardcore Democrats being a social worker, um, my dad and medical technologist, my mom, I don't know how that has anything to do with it. But, <laughs> but they were, you know, they, we went to a hippie church and they were very, they were very sort of social action kind of people, so Democrats. Um, but Waukesha County is one of the most dependably uh, Republican counties in the entire country. And even so, growing up there, greenhouse science was taught like fact, and there was no other side working against that sort of just sheer scientific reality. So my thought when I was a, a young kid just coming out of uh, grade school, going to middle school was, gosh, I really like science, I like engineering, I'm fascinated by all this application towards changing the transportation sector, and it also jives really well with um, the idea that we need to improve all of these large-scale economies to help save the planet. And so I wanted to go to MIT and be an engineer in something like um, alternative transportation. And what made me want to go to MIT specifically was this article I read, um, I think probably in Reader's Digest, which I think my grandmother got, about the decades-long um, prank wars that existed between, I think it's Yale and MIT, um, including one that was just incredibly famous where somehow the MIT kids got this unidentifiable black orb installed under the football pitch at Yale for their annual game, and at halftime blew it up. What? And this I've never giant, heard of this. Yeah, well, we'll we'll have to look it up on, online. This giant, like fourteen foot radius black ball just appeared in center field, <laughs> and like I thought that was so hilarious. Like I got to go to school with people like that <laughs> that would do that kind of thing. But then as I progressed through high school, I kind of well, I came across this quote by Rachmaninoff, uh, music is enough for a lifetime, but a lifetime isn't enough for music. And not that that swayed me towards music, but it sort of put this little germ in my brain of, gosh, how do I want to spend my life? I love music so much. I'm never going to be some kind of, you know, Mozartian um, wunderkind that it just gets too easy for, and like you get bored or you want to try something else because it's like music's hard. but I love it and I love dedicating hours and hours to it. Um, I love the feeling of performing with other people. I love feedback from the audience and feeling like you've touched somebody in a way that they didn't, didn't expect. So somewhere at the end of, of probably junior or senior year, I decided I wanted to be a musician. Now, to get to opera though, huh, that's a much bigger proposition because opera to yeah, me... Yeah, were you singing then? Or? I was singing all the way back from like second grade. I was in the in, Waukesha Boys Choir. Okay, was, so in sort of the choral tradition that exists. Yeah, I guess you could say in the choral tradition. Yeah, I was in, I was in a Waukesha Youth Choir all the way through high school. Um, didn't sing in the schools until high school because my involvement uh, as a cellist precluded that. There wasn't enough time in the schedule. Um, and so the thing that made me think that I should do voice professionally was actually an uh, interlocking arts camp in the summer between my junior and senior year. I was in the orchestra, and a buddy and I decided to get together to practice this excerpt. Uh, it was really challenging. It was in G-flat major, six flats. And I was 17 at the time, and this friend of mine was 14. We were meeting somewhere like you do at interlocking, you know, out behind some idyllic cabin with the birds singing the trees and all that. And I practiced it for about 20 minutes before he got there. He was running late. And when he got there, he just sat down and played it flawlessly. And I was like, 
how did you do that? <laughs> You're so much better than I am, and I'm much older than you and about to like go to college and pursue this, but, and most of the kids in that orchestra were, um, I was the very back of the orchestra, and they were all, you know, 15, 16, not so many my age, and it kind of made me realize that I'm probably a little bit behind technically, and I didn't have the perspective then to see that if I got with a good teacher and actually put in the time to catch up, of course I could. I just thought, oh, I'm not that good at cello, but I still seem to have some ability to stand out vocally because I get solos with the choir and I do, you know, get parts in the musical or whatever it was. So that convinced me to be a voice major. I actually did a voice and a cello double major um, in my undergrad. And I was nonetheless terrified of opera because I couldn't understand what grown-up big guy tenors were doing. The mm -hmm. sounds that they were generating were so foreign to my understanding, uh, having been raised kind of as a choral singer. And Were you attracted to those sounds? I was definitely attracted to those sounds and I wanted to know how to make them, but I, but I just I couldn't figure it out. Um, so I never, even in my, my entire undergrad, I never said something like, I'm going to be an opera singer after I graduate. Uh, I just, I was a voice major, and then I was going to see what I could do to make my living with my voice. And opera was like w too scary to even consider. Um, so actually, after my undergrad, because I was a founder of Cantus, this touring right, yeah, choral that. ensemble, yeah. I was a professional choral singer, where such a career does not necessarily actually exist in the United States. Um, at that point, beyond us and Chanticleer, of course, based in San Francisco. So I did that for another seven years after graduation. Then the age 30 loomed large, um, and those of us who were approaching that age kind of looked at ourselves in the mirror and said, are we going to be sort of choral singers for the rest of our careers, or do we need to go back to school and explore other, you know, forms of development? So a number of us peeled off at that point and pursued masters and eventually doctorates in opera performance. Um, I'm going to heavily preface what I'm about to ask you. Because the, the fact that you have a choral background explains why you, f you fit for us so well in, in this piece in particular. But I'm wondering, because um, when I met you, you were singing Romeo mm -hmm. at IU. Um, by IU, I mean Indiana University. And this is a place where they do big, big productions. Productions Huge. you would never think of doing with students. Repertoire you wouldn't usually do with students. Right. Um, and they have an unusually... Um, copious amount of big voices. It's a place that deals well with big voices mm -hmm. um, and has for a long time. I mean, they used to do Parsifal every, every year. Every year. Um, Not to be fair, that have, was uh, with a lot of That was with faculty. some faculty, many of whom were old Met singers. Mm -hmm. um, but this is a place that, you know, has done Rosencab with students. And They've done Ariadne. Done, yeah, they do, they do giant things. all the time. Um, and you've sung at uh, Opera Theatre St. Louis. Mm -hmm. And you've uh, you sing with Upper Carolina doing uh, what I would call like the second tenor parts, right? But on a big stage with a big it's orchestra. a big stage, yeah, and a big orchestra. Yeah. Um, you and I have done um, uh, Butterfly with a light lyric soprano and a prepared <laughs> piano. We've done Bala and Mascara in a ninety-seat cloister. We've done a cabaret version of Carmen in the middle of nowhere in Sardinia. Mm -hmm. um, what, what, what brings you to do to do these sort of intimate projects? Like, what, what is it that draws you to still want to work on this on this scale and with this scale of audience? Um, 
as opposed to just pursuing the larger work that a lot of your your colleagues who aren't anymore capable have. Okay. You're certainly not with the in-series for the paycheck. <laughs> I love the paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's an interesting question. Um, certainly as a full-time you know, professor, I'm not pursuing a full performance calendar like my colleagues who need to make their rent and you know be able to live on that are. Um, those gigs that actually pay well enough that you can fill your calendar with just a couple of productions per year, those are hard to get. <laughs> those are yeah, sure. really hard to get. You're up against the entire field of super experienced singers as well as everybody that's being churned out of all the different conservatories and universities. Um, you know, so it's a constantly growing field uh, against which you have to compete. So it was interesting that last Sunday, or this Sunday after the performance, we went out with uh, a local singer, somebody who's friends with a number of the cast members. And he had been in the Army Chorus for 26 years. He'd also done lots of opera all, that whole time. He retired for about a year and now he's coming back. He's coaching with somebody here and somebody in New York. Yeah, he just signed with somebody, an agent, who got him an audition with The Met. And in spite of that seemingly heady, you know, high-level kind of career that he may be jumping back into, he was disappointed that somehow he missed the call about this audition for this very production. So even somebody like that who He's trying to get you know one of these kinds of careers going again. He would love to be involved with something like this because there is there's probably I don't want to cast aspersions on sort of regular big opera musicianship or or theatrical um, dedication. But there's something about these small venues with a small cast, with a small theater, and a small audience that just forces the artist into kind of a crucible of honesty, of process, intent. There's very little, there's very little of that um, defensiveness and neuroses that can come in a lot with opera at, at the big house level. Um, maybe because it's just more of a, a team effort. Yeah, I wonder if it's also, I mean, so much of it becomes quantitative in the sense that it becomes so much about bigger, louder, because so much in a big hall is you exactly. couldn't do a lot of the staging yeah, yeah. that we've done with the Verity in a large hall. Yeah, if you look at one of the, one of the, the first things that um, reviewers of opera typically write is about the size of the voice. Some um, singers describe it as the entire world of opera is a bunch of size queens. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it's absolutely super important to be able to be heard. Um, one, of the, one of the teachers at Indiana is known for her quote, artistry be begins when I can bleeping hear you. So, you know, back to that idea that at Indiana University they they liked big voices because they liked them being able to be heard. But then, yeah, that's opera in the old war, war horse, giant war house uh, vein. 
we can take opera anywhere and do it in a completely different way. And I think you're seeing that in this production. Um, but I think one of the things that's really interesting about this production is um, that there still are yeah. several big voices oh, yeah. in the cast. Yes, there are. And to be that close to a big voice is thrilling. It's thrilling, and it's something that probably you know 90% of even opera goers have not experienced. Yeah, the Netherlands Opera Ring Cycle has a, albeit obvious, but a set that's a giant ring that comes out over the audience, oh. and the orchestra is set on the stage, so the singers can come out into the audience on this ring. So to have a Votan right in front of your face, <laughs> yeah. It's, 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 yeah, it's tremendous. Well, and that's, I think that gives people a completely different appreciation for what it is, because if you only ever hear them out in, you know, row M, orchestra or balcony or whatever it is, you're glad you can hear them, but you don't understand the truly sort of Olympic level feat of coordination, stamina, strength, uh, just sheer resonance that is happening on stage to make that possible. One, if you've, you know, if you've ever been in a, a classroom as a music educator with, with, say, an oboe or a clarinet, uh, and you're giving a class about this and somebody's demonstrating, you need to wait for them to stop before you can talk to the class, because those instruments are so powerful. They put out so much sound effortlessly, without any real physical cost to the person generating the sound. And even a string instrument, you know, you would have to raise your voice quite a bit to speak over somebody just playing a, a soft line on a violin. Yeah. So what opera singers are doing in those big halls is, is truly amazing. This piece has made me really interested in how different audience members hear, mm. because um, it's a loud piece. Yeah. Um, not just the singing, but also the amplified mm. voice, spoken mm -hmm. voice, which has to be amplified to be heard over eight right. opera singers going guns to the wall. Yeah. Some audience members, I've noticed, are sensitive to, they can have eight opera singers singing, that doesn't bother them at all, but if just the amplified uh, actor mm -hmm. is speaking, then that, that, that becomes too loud for them. Mm -hmm. And vice versa, some are fine with the amplified spoken text, and the moment they have um, a dramatic soprano singing in their face, that's, <laughs> that's too loud. Right. Um, I've never really thought about that before, how we... It's not, it doesn't come down to decibels, it comes down to quality in a way. Yeah. Well, one of the, one of the other um, singers was talking about how when we sing, there's this little action in the inner, inner ear. I, know, I must not have learned this in pedagogy, I for, forgot about it, but there's, there's a protective mechanism of sort of um, clamping off part of the ear canal to prevent too much sound from uh -huh. coming in right through yeah, around the, the air here, actually, not even the induction of sound through the bones. Um, because otherwise we'd, we'd go deaf. And I think Paul, our conductor, was referring to that. Was he talking about it too? Yeah, he and Brian were talking about it. So. Uh, that kind of ties into something else I wanted to ask you about. You are one of the um, most reliable singers I've ever worked with. I'm gonna. I'm. I hope I'm not gonna regret saying this. I've never. I've never experienced you sick. Too sick to sing. I've seen you very sick. Now we've but done you it. could still sing. <laughs> um, yeah, I was sick in Italy when we were doing. Oh, I don't know if it was. And in North Carolina, we did a television radio where you were oh, that's right. a television interview where you were practically green. Yeah. Um, and yet we still rehearsed, and you still sang. Yeah. Um, so so clearly, uh, you have a mastery of technique. Um, it's a really healthy sound and a, a big free sound. And Indiana is really good at training mm -hmm. a good technique. And at the same time, you're, 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 you're a great actor, you're a great musician. What is the nexus point between where technique and artistry meet? 
Oh well, what is that? I didn't know that's a big question, but what is the experience like on the stage mm. being technically attuned and also being in the moment as a, as a singing actor? That is like the fundamental That's question. That's the crux, isn't it? Yeah, that is the, that is the absolute crux of being an opera singer. Well, and as a director, I'm very jealous in that I'll never understand that because I'll never be able to actually but you see it be all in the that time. moment. I see it, you but see I don't know what it you, feels like. You totally like. know what it is when you see it and hear it. And that, that right there is the magic of opera and why people go, I think. Because you're seeing this otherworldly just transubstantiation of a person into like this vessel for the meaning of whatever's happening or the character or whatever it is um, and we chase that feeling that is that is absolutely our drug so that's the it, we chase yeah. that confluence of like, I'm in character and the voice is working and I can do what I want and I can turn the emotion that the character is going through into just the right sound because the technique is healthy and the voice is fresh and are you thinking about technique when you're performing i think i think that there's probably two kinds of singers at least as i've kind of talked with many colleagues about this there are the ones who say that you always sort of need to keep a little guiding you know sort of co-pilot of technique in the back of your mind so that you don't go off the rails uh, through just sheer excitement and then there's the, 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 the person who's probably more like a Maria Callas or these people that are known for just complete immersion into the part. Well, I was just going to ask then if you think the common wisdom holds that one means they're not actually giving as full a dramatic performance and the other is, is singing at the cost of their, their voice. Mm. So, they, so there's a, a negative for either of them. You yeah, mean. I mean, do you feel that's true? Or do you feel like you can, oh. there is a magical middle ground? I mean, I ask you particularly because I don't feel like you ever make a, uh, it never feels like you sacrifice anything dramatically, but I've never heard you sound unhealthy either. Mm. I mean, that is definitely the, the illusion that you're going for. <laughs> you're always in control, but you're also always leaving it all out there on the stage. Um, I think most educators, you know, the, the teachers that I've worked with, including people who had significant performing careers, um, would say things like, you're never going to be 100% when you perform. There's always going to be just a little something that's not quite there. My, my teacher in Indiana um, said, I had maybe two times in my career where I went out and the entire night I just said, I have it all right here uh, to draw from. I don't need to hold anything back. It's all perfect. He felt like every other time, there's always just a little bit of care needed to, to marshal his, his resources and not go too far so that by the end of the night, he didn't have the right amount to give. Well, yeah, because so much of, another thing I'll never understand, but so much of what you guys do, and particularly in the rep you sing, is about pacing. It yeah. becomes about not giving in the beginning because mm -hmm. you have to, you know you have to make it through this aria mm -hmm. at the end. Yeah. Um, there's an expression, sing on the... Principle, not the interest. Wait, mm. I got it backwards. Sing on the interest. <laughs> Sing on the interest, not the principle. <laughs> so that you're never spending down your your your, your vocal capital, um, so that you can bounce back the next day, but also just so you can get to the, to the end of the show. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if this, because um, what we're talking about is exactly why 
singers at their best are m so much more, now I'm biased, but so much more impressive than actors at their best. Because mm -hmm. actors go to the method, right? And they inhabit the emotion and mm -hmm. they are able to convince us that they are experiencing that emotion because they're going, they are experiencing that emotion. But singers can't do that because you wouldn't be able to sing if you were doing Lady Macbeth with the emotion that <laughs> Lady Macbeth would have, or if you were um, doing the end of Lady Macbeth of Majinsk, I mean, you just couldn't do it. Um, so it's a, so so I feel like our audiences and audiences in general would appreciate opera more if they actually understood mm. how difficult singers, what singers are doing are with these tiny little chords and these complex manipulations mm -hmm. of a resonating chamber and, mm -hmm. and diction and then everything else. That same teacher um, at Indiana used to say that opera acting is the fakest acting, or the phoniest, or something like that, um, that you will ever do. But at the same time, he also said that, that you have to sing from emotion, which is just like emotional recall that is taught in, you know, method. Um, he just said that you need to tuck that emotion further down into your body. So that rather than feeling it where you might feel it, uh, say you were feeling rage, and that was some kind of turbulent emotion felt in your gut and in your chest that then made your limbs tense and you know all the things that rage feels like, right. that you would take that emotion and yes, experience it, yes, reference it, yes, use it to inform your performance, but that it's, it's centered much, much deeper in your body. So then how do you as an opera educator now teach a new generation mm. how to give convincing physical performances while keeping all that on the inside as opposed to letting it go into the tension and tension in the body and throughout? Well, my students are all undergrads. So this is the first time that they're doing it. Now, mm -hmm. because we do a uh, production every year, um, which is... I haven't done a whole lot of research on this, but just sort of anecdotally, I believe that's somewhat uncommon, um, especially for a smaller music department. Um, some of them have actually accrued quite a bit of experience by the time they've gotten to the junior and senior years. Um, but my students also come from, you know, having done musical theater shows, maybe as many as four since high school, and a lot of them have done straight theater. So they're not necessarily uh, entirely unversed in acting and acting techniques. Um, what's really interesting is that, that sort of nexus between technique and embodying a character on stage, it actually works much more to the, uh, to the betterment of them as, as singers when they get in opera. Uh, my colleagues and I have noticed this for, I've been teaching the class for almost 10 years, everybody sings better in the opera workshop class than they do in almost any other venue. Uh. Whether it's in choir, you know, they get out and they sing a solo. It's great, but it, but there's there's an element of formality and how performative it is. And certainly, you're in front of all your peers backing you up, and the conductor's right there, and all everybody's parents. Do you find that even it can even sort out technical? It, that's what that's the thing. I'm that wondering happens. if there's yeah. a weird circle, like exactly technique makes you able to. Mm -hmm. Uh, realize your artistic intention, but artistic intention makes you able to realize technical ambition. Entirely, yes. But it, it really only happens once you're once you're out of yourself, and that's what a character does for you. Yeah, I, I imagine, I mean, I'm not a singer, God forbid, but I imagine so much of what young singers in particular 
um, wrestle with is being in their head too much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, oh, I was told to, to feel <coughs> this sensation by my teacher. We worked on it for an hour. I was told to imagine this image when I approached this note, and we worked on it for an hour. All that stuff is, is wonderful, and of course they should be doing that work in the practice room and in the studio with their teacher. Um, but when it comes time to sing your beautiful aria to the soprano that you're trying to convince of this or that, you can't be thinking about those images and that sensation. At least not to the exclusion of actually interacting with right. your colleague. What about you? Did you study acting? Because I know you, I know you didn't get much at Indiana. There's not mu there's not much of an acting. Class well, I took Carol Indiana. Vanessa's um, opera workshop class, uh -huh. of course, uh, and I took the one um, taught by her predecessor, um, Mark Clark. Mark Clark. Yeah. Both of which they were very different, but they were both wonderful classes. Um, in my undergrad, I took the the basic, uh, the intro to acting class through the theater department, which was wonderful. Um, the method we learned there was called GOAT, <laughs> not greatest of all time, but goal, other, tactics, and expectation, which is, you know, 20 years later, still a very standard um, theater method. Um, Do you use it with your students? I, we talk about that, yeah. We definitely talk about that. So uh, what's next? What's on, the, what's on the horizon? Besides returning to your lovely <laughs> wife and kids and maintaining a house? I have a faculty development grant uh, for which I'm going to write an opera. Really? You're going to compose an opera? I'm going to compose an opera. Wow, so congratulations. Yeah, it's exciting and terrifying. I need to find a librettist, I need to find a theme, I need to... Do you have a subject? I need to find a subject. <laughs> um, it's really challenging these days to know, as you know, as a composer, what to make, what to make your subject. Um, it feels like lots of things are uh, off limits to uh, white, cis, hetero, male. Uh, you know, of course, I'm only half white, so that's true. I, I have a little more to, to grab from. <laughs> yeah, no, I understand your point. As a, even as a producer, sure. I, I have a responsibility to be sensitive to the times. Yeah, um, and. Um, negotiating how to give a, a much needed and much deserved platform to a diverse array of composers and librettists and directors and, and um, such and still um, have my own voice mm -hmm. out there in the world. Um, yeah, it's a different And it's incredibly important to people. I, I tell people, you know, I cried in that scene in Moana. I don't know if you've seen it. Moana is the, is it the latest Disney princess thing. I have two girls, so obviously it's a huge part of my life. But it's it's based in uh, sort of a fictional Hawaii or somewhere in the South Pacific. And um, there's an entire sequence where they where they they sing a song about how basically those South Pacific cultural values that have been handed down from generation to generation persist, and how that defines who they are as a people. Um, and it just kind of brought a tear to my eye because. It, here are some of my ancestral, you know, people getting representation on the world mm -hmm. stage mm -hmm. in, yes, extremely crass commercial pop media, but that's a thing, you know, to see yourself reflected. Well, what you're, I wish we had time to get into it now, but what you're sort of hinting at is also the conversation about cultural appropriation. Mm -hmm. What is cultural appropriation? Exactly. I don't want to do that. Does it... I mean, I, I have real mixed feelings about even the term cultural appropriation, and, and I've, I've heard some, some great 
artists um, speak about how um, cultural appropriation doesn't even exist, as as or it exists ubiquitous to everything because it's mm. just the way we collect stories um, from other cultures, and yet we know it when we see it. Yeah, um, it's a difficult issue. Um, I didn't know you composed. I don't compose a lot. I love to compose. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Um, and roles? Um, well, dream roles? What's your, what sort of project you, what sort of roles would you like to be doing? Well, I did a, <coughs> I finally got to do Romeo professionally with Toledo, um, two years ago. And that was just so fun. Because you get to do everything in that role. You get to sword fight, you get to woo the girl, you get to dance. You get to take poison and die. It's just, you, it's a very full experience. And of course the music is amazing. Um, so that was really, really fun. I don't know what else is out there that I should still try to do. Is that repertoire that particularly speaks to you, the French opera? So, um, some people say that the quality of my voice is suited to it, probably because I don't have like the most gargantuan sort of what people would call typically Italianate voice, you know, with the big burly ring and all that kind of sound. Um, and also the tessitura is quite high, so the guys that do have those awesomely powerful burly voices sometimes don't like to hang out in that high range. Um, although, of course, Corelli sang those parts, um, and a lot of the, the, the big voiced guys from the, from the uh, middle part of the last century did. Um, Are you comfortable up that high, like Nadir? And Nadir is kind of a special case because there's an aria that is, I can't remember if, what the exact, it may be mezzo voce or sotto voce or something like that. Uh, no, it's half voice. Mezzo voce. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if you do it come scritto, then you're supposed to not be in that full Italianate ringing quality. Yeah, Nadir is probably, I've but always thought Nadir style. is sort of the end of the haute conte tradition. That sort of traveled from remote through Berlioz, and its last vestige is, yeah. is possibly Nadir. Because not only is the aria um, up there, up there, but the, so du like. the duet with um, with Leila, the second act duet with Leila, is also quite piano and high. But what is meant by that piano and high? Those, of course, yeah. it's all shifting. All those goals were shifting. Um, but after. What Gilbert Dupré saying his famous Do di Petto, there was really no going back. Audience was were just so thrilled by that. So even the things that had been written for the French high tenor were starting to be sung by these guys who could do it with what we would now consider the full head voice. So the what is it called? The voce voce piena in testa, the full voice in the head. Mm -hmm. So, I, don't, I, I remember seeing an audition uh, notice a couple of years ago in one of the sort of trade, trade websites that we used to figure out what auditions to take. And they were auditioning for Daughter of the Regiment. And I it said... That's a C's in that. Oh yeah, you know, famously the aria has nine high C's. It's the one that Pavarotti sort of made his name on. Um, and the, there was, maybe it was a parenthetical after, you know, oh, we're, we're hearing the Roltonio. Legit technique only, no French technique. 
And that implies... It, that implies, don't come in here and sing that high C in some sort of a reinforced falsetto. Even if you can do it and it and has good projection, um, we want that Pavarotti-esque, yeah. thrilling, trumpetous, ringy quality. Yeah. And that is probably what Dolby had in mind, even if he was ready for registered years there. And they'd already crossed the, they had. the Rubicon. Well, and people talk a lot about, for that particular aria, how it's supposed to be... Um, it's almost like a like a nationalistic thing. He's mm -hmm. supposed to be Tyrolean, right? Mm -hmm. Which is a mountain people who yodeled, yeah. and that octave leap is imitating the yodel. Now, is it imitating it by way of flipping to the falsetto register, which yeah, is exactly. what a yodel which does? Is what a yodel does yeah. Exactly. Or is it just that it's an octave and it changes timbre? I've never thought interesting thoughts about a Donizetti opera before. <laughs> <huh>? <laughs> uh, I mean, I also wonder about uh, the Gluck Orfe. Because uh -huh. I, I think, obviously, that that was no comp. I mean, that's, that's uh, 17, yeah, 60, 17, sure. 70s. Yeah. Um, but uh, Juan Diego Flores just sang it last year at Covent Garden. I didn't see it, but I doubt he used that technique. No, of course not, because um, his be high notes are impeccable. And that has Ds all over the place. He has Ds. And he has them. Well, good. Thank you so much for being, My being our this guinea pig for this, <laughs> this first interview session. Um, you can see Brian perform uh, tomorrow night, the 19th, or also this weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, at the Source Theater in Viva Verde. Thanks very much, Brian. Thank you. Now, a few things to announce before, before we close out this episode of In Tune. Um, our director salon for uh, Figaro, and Figaro in Four Quartets uh, will be October 9th at the... Uh, room and board on the rooftop terrace. Should be a beautiful evening, a fall evening on the on the roof. We're going to have a fascinating discussion uh, with uh, three luminaries and myself. Um, we're going to have Dr. Joseph Serene, who's a distinguished professor uh, emeritus of physics from Georgetown University. In fact, all our guests are coming from Georgetown University in this collaborative director's slot. Uh, we'll also have poet and Professor of Poetics, uh, Mark McMorris, joining us, reading some of his work, talking about T.S. Eliot, and will be moderated by Professor Dr. Anna Dini, who's a wonderful translator and uh, literary critic, who will lead us in a discussion, myself included, I'll be talking about Mozart and the classical style, and she'll lead us in a discussion of periodicity, of the subjectivity of time, of the four quartets by T.S. Eliot, which deal with this how we experience time and memory and loss. Uh, it should be a wonderful evening. We'll have music uh, and an open conversation and Q&A with our audience. It's limited seating, so we, we ask that you call and make a reservation for the event. It's totally free. Again, that's October 9th, starting at 7 p.m. at Room and Board, which is just here on 14th Street across from our offices at the Source Theater. Uh, we also have a few, a few exciting additions to the season to announce. For our Zarzuela, we're bringing in a wonderful young Mexican composer named Ulises Eliseo, uh, who's going to help arrange the score of Breton's La Verbena de la Paloma for traditional Mexican instruments. We're very excited about that. He'll also be writing some new music and sort of leading the musical curation of the project. And finally, I've met this this week with Parinaz Bahadori, who's a wonderful, exciting artist working on, uh, she's also an architect, but as an artist she works with uh, calligraphy, 
calligraphy, Persian calligraphy, and she's going to join us to help create the visual element of the Zerse, which which closes out this season. So I'm I'm thrilled to be collaborating with these these diverse and uh, exciting artists. I want to thank you for listening. You can like our podcast online, and you can subscribe on iTunes or listen to us on SoundCloud. You can also check out our blog, which is www.inseries.wordpress.com, or on Facebook, which is just backslash the InSeries. You can also find us on Instagram at InSeriesOpera, and my personal Instagram account is in underscore series underscore ad. Uh, Rabindranath Tagore tells us that civility is the greatest and first work of art. So I'll add to that send out, go make your own art through kindness, generosity, and graciousness to each other. Until next time, this is Timothy Nelson, Artistic Director of the In-Series. <laughs>